0: Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If so, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated shareable playlists and collections made just for you. Aww along with personalized recommendations to help with content discovery. And the best part is, it's super easy to use! It's definitely my favorite listening app, and I'm sure it'll be yours too. Uh, So do yourself a favor, download Himalaya today, and be sure to follow Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries once you're there. Hey there! It's Mike here, one half of the Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries podcast. Uh, this week, uh, there were some scheduling, uh, difficulties, uh, with Josh and I, so I decided to, uh, bring you a solo episode of uh, Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Um... So, without further ado, let's get started, and let's dive right into one of the most notorious mysteries. uh, Something that has been covered in numerous books, and numerous specials, and numerous TV shows in the past, over the past few decades. The mystery of the Crystal Skulls. Were they from outer space? Were they uh, magical relics from a a distant past, or are they just a bunch of bullshit? We'll find out in this episode of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. So, I I picked the Crystal Skulls to talk about for uh, this podcast because it's always something that's interested me. Uh, I remember reading about them in various different unexplained mysteries, books, stuff about like ancient mysteries or mysteries of the unknown. Uh, I think there was a show in the 80s or 90s. that was about unexplained mysteries that I I, I don't quite remember who the host was. I don't think it was Arthur C. Clarke. It might have been maybe Orson Welles. It was some big name. At the, around that time that hosted it and there was an episode where he's talking about uh, The Crystal Skulls and yes, they were the focus of the last uh, Indiana Jones movie Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull a film which I personally feel gets way too much shit but that's a whole nother story uh, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to go off on that tangent but yeah, The Crystal Skulls have been a part of Unexplained mystery lore for quite a while now, and it's only fairly recently where when their uh, legitimacy has been put into question. Now, I'm going to be reading straight from this uh, article uh, from a website called called All That Is Interesting and this is by Daniel Rennie. So, uh, want to give a huge shout out to Daniel for providing this uh, this text to work from. So. It all began in 1924 with a British adventurer Frederick Mitchell Hedges who led an expedition to Lubatun, Lubantun, an ancient Mayan city deep within the Yucatan jungle in modern-day Belize. There inside a Mayan pyramid, his adopted daughter Anna found one of the most mysterious objects in archaeology, a crystal skull fashioned out of a single solid piece of clear quartz. Since the discovery of the Mitchell Hedges skull, as it is called, an origin story of supernatural powers and legendary civilizations has developed. But can any of these legends be trusted? The Mitchell Hedges skull is one of a handful of true crystal skulls in either a private or public collection. And the the term true should be in quotes because... For the most... I mean, let's all think about this logically. Are they... Relics from a Mayan or uh, Aztec culture, possibly, but there really isn't anything out there that really ties them to any of those specific cultures or civilizations. Are they from outer space? More than likely, probably not. I and mean, even my cat is calling bullshit. If uh, if you if you hear him in the background, um, they're definitely not the result of aliens. I highly doubt that's the case, um, but I'm pretty sure Giorgio Stokolos would probably uh, disagree with me. Because everything is aliens, according to his deluded mind. Um, I bet he got his wild hairstyle from aliens, too. So anyway, these true crystal skulls in private or public collections uh, all are varied in size and carved from either clear, cloudy, or colored quartz. But none of the crystal skulls have captured the popular imagination quite like the Mitchell hedges the Mitchell hedges skull. Frederick Mitchell hedges who was known to embellish his adventures which is already a red flag. If it, if you if the person who discovered these crystal skulls is already known to be a bullshit artist, yeah, um th- there there's should be a neon sign around anything that he's trying to say that he discovered is being Totally bogus. But that's just me personally. So, he was known to embellish advent- his adventures. He wrote of the skull in his 1954 memoir, Danger My Ally, and claimed it was a relic of the Mayans. He dubbed it the Skull of Doom. I, <laughs> I find that hilarious. And, and there, you told, I mean, there's no way that the writers of the Indiana Jones films uh, did not know about the crystal skulls. Uh, it's probably something they were thinking about maybe doing for an Indiana Jones film for a long time, but didn't really think it was going to work in uh, the franchise until years later. Because, I mean, this, the skull of doom, how how corny can you get? I mean, what are these going to, where did these skulls come from? The same uh, temple where the Sankara stones were and the temple of doom? Or was it? Were they in the temple next door? Um, but anyway, he dubbed it this. He dubbed them. He dubbed the skull the skull of doom, and that several people who have cynically laughed at it have died. Others have been stricken and become seriously ill. And finally, he cryptically added, "How it came into my possession, I have reason for not revealing." Oh, so basically, you're saying that? Oh, I how how I got it? Psh, eh. I got reasons for not telling you. And those reasons are, I know it's a bunch of bullshit, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that that it's such, because, hey, I wanted to string you along, so you think I'm cool. Um, yeah, so, and, and the whole claims about people dying, like it's some spinoff of the Egyptian curse, uh, are not founded at all. After his death, Anna Mitchell Hedges spent decades spreading the skull's mythos globally on international tours and through appearances on television shows such as Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. There we go, Arthur C. Clarke. So, to an audience, she reported that the minds told her that the skull was used to will death. I can't believe anybody bought the bullshit that came out of her mouth or the bullshit that came out of her father's mouth. Like, this is so on the nose. How could anybody buy this shit? So other so-called magical crystal skulls from private collections came out of the woodwork with exotic-sounding names such as Sha Na Ra. What's that? The Sha Na <laughs> That sounds made up. It really—it sounds like the person who titled this Sha Na was a big fan of the band Sha and was like, "Oh, I'll just change one one word." And it's Shanara and Amar, the name of a Tibetan crystal skull. Another was simply called Max the Crystal Skull. <laughs> Max? There's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing unique. Uh, you know, what is that skull over there? Oh, that's just Max. <laughs> Max the Crystal Skull. Um, These crystal skulls became part of a larger Allegedly Native American prophecy Which claimed that when 13 of them Were finally reunited The skulls would Disseminate universal knowledge and secrets Critical to humanity's survival But only when humanity was ready Which is a cop-out It's like, oh, only if these are Connected or reunited With one another That that, that something will happen But if they're not, eh, nothing's gonna happen Essentially what it is, it's a way for people who are spreading this total misinformation to have an out if nothing ever happens, because they can just be like, well, they haven't been reunited yet, so it could still happen. There's a chance. So the presence of similar skulls in the collection in, in the Musée du Quai, Bronley in Paris, and the British Museum in London seemed only le- to legitimize these fanciful stories. However, while anthropologists and scientists from both these prestigious museums dismiss the possibility of the crystal skulls originating from Atlantis or outer space, of course, you know, and we had to throw Atlantis in there, too. Uh, Might as well say that that one of the skulls came from the Bermuda Triangle. Um, For some reason, I can't say the word. Uh, I guess maybe uh, my brain is crystallizing as I speak. But yeah, uh, Many were curious about the true origins and purpose of these exotic and macabre objects. Both museums had displayed their crystal skulls as Mesoamerican Aztec artifacts for over a hundred years, although their authenticity was questioned long before the 20th century even begun. Uh, Still, it wasn't until a milky white rock crystal skull was delivered anonymously to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. in 1992 that the mystery of the crystal skull's origins would finally be unraveled. The only evidence that accompanied it was an unsigned note which read, This Aztec skull was purchased in Mexico in 1960. With Mexico as the only lead, researching the skull fell to Jane McLaren Walsh, an expert in Mexican archaeology at the Smithsonian. Smithsonian. With little information to go on, Walsh compared the skulls from other museums, researched museum archives, and employed scientific research to find answers. Eventually, her quest would lead to the Mitchell Hedges skull. One of the first things Walsh noticed was the stylistic differences between the crystal skulls and those depicted in Mesoamerican art. Skulls were a reoccurring motif in pre-Columbian iconography, but Mesoamerican skulls were almost always carved out of basalt and were crudely carved. In addition, quartz was rarely used in pre-Columbian artifacts, and no crystal skulls had ever been found in any documented archaeological excavation. With the design of the crystal skulls remaining an enigma, Walsh turned her attention to the skull's documented record of ownership. She traced both the British and Paris skulls to a 19th century amateur archaeologist and French antiquities dealer named Eugene Boban. Boban, who specialized in Aztec artifacts, frequently traveled to Mexico to purchase antiquities and take them back to Paris to sell in his shop. Don't mind that uh, background noise. My cat is uh, flipping out, apparently. Uh, I I guess the crystal skulls are... Uh, willing him to try to uh, interrupt this podcast. So Boban uh, had a record of selling fakes, but neither museum had bought the skulls directly from him. Boban had originally sold the skull to Alphonse Pinart, an explorer who seems who it seems offloaded the skull to another museum in 1878 after the Exposition Universelle noted that the skull's authenticity appears doubtful. 20 years later in 1898 so apparently there there was evidence out there that these skulls were fakes and were total hoaxes long before we eventually figured that out many many years down the line like i said earlier i can't buy that so many people bought this bullshit for so long it, it, it's really kind of mind-boggling to me that's the biggest mystery That people would be this stupid and be this moronic for so many years and buy that the magic crystal skulls were actually a thing. So, 20 years later in 1898, the British Museum bought their skull from Tiffany & Company. Uh, The jewelry store had bought the skull directly from Boban sometime after he left Mexico for New York. Boban who had left Mexico in a hurry after trying to sell the same crystal skull to the National Museum of Mexico under the false claim that it was an Aztec artifact. What are you trying to do? Stop being possessed by the skull, Olympus. Stop it. <laughs> Maybe the skulls are real. Um so <laughs> So the jewelry store had bought the skull directly from Boban sometime after he left Mexico for New York. Boban had left Mexico in a hurry after trying to sell the same crystal skull to the National Museum of Mexico under the false claim that it was an Aztec artifact unearthed in a Mexican archaeological site. Um, With the crystal skull's pre-Columbian origin in doubt, Walsh turned to science to determine when and where they were made. Under a collaborative program set up in 1996 between the Smithsonian and British museums, Walsh received help from Margaret Sachs, a conservation scientist from the British Museum. The scientific studies focused exclusively on the skulls and their museums. Radiocarbon dating, one of the most common tests used to determine the age of an object, was ruled out because it cannot date quartz. Instead, other forms of analysis were used to determine the biography of the British and Smithsonian skulls. Using light and scanning electron microscopy, SEM, Walsh and Sachs compared the surfaces of the skulls with the surface of a genuine Mesoamerican crystal goblet, which is one of the few, few pre-Columbian crystal objects. The irregular etch marks on the goblet were consistent with handheld tools, but inconsistent with the regular etch marks on the skulls. That's a big discovery, because if these were legit, crystal skulls from Mesoamerican time periods, from Aztec or uh, Mayan culture or civilizations, then the same type of marks and things like that would appear on these skulls. They're not there. These regular etch marks prove that the skulls were constructed with more equipment like a rotary wheel, which could only have been available after the Spanish conquest and subsequent fall of Mexico's native peoples. Next, Raman spectroscopic analysis was de- used to determine the origin of the crystal. Crystal has specific impurities consistent with where they're from. The impurities on the skull in the British Museum revealed that the quartz originated from Brazil or Madagascar, and not Mexico. In the late 19th century, Madagascar and Brazil exported rock crystal to France— at the same time that Boban was selling antiquities and fakes. Later, an independent test concluded that the crystal used for the Paris skull also came from either Brazil or Madagascar. However, the Smithsonian skull yielded a different result entirely. Using X-ray diffraction analysis, Sachs discovered minute particles of silicate carbide, a sludgy substance used to coat a rotary wheel to give an object a smooth finish, but the substance only came into use during the 1950s, thus making the Smithsonian skull's construction far more recent. The results proved conclusively that all three skulls were too modern to be Mayan or Aztec, let alone from Atlantis. Uh, now only one skull remained, the Mitchell-Hedges skull. In her research, Walsh found irrefutable proof that the Mitchell-Hedges skull was just as unremarkable as the other crystal skulls in an article from the july 1936 edition of the british journal man of, uh, of all all the titles of all the na- of all the all the things to use for the title of a journal uh you got you got any ideas for what we're gonna call this journal uh man i don't know that's it man that's the perfect name we're gonna go with that man So a photograph uh, quite clearly shows the same skull owned by Mitchell Hedges, except that it is referred to as the Burney Skull. It appears that in 1936, nine to 12 years after the Mitchell Hedges family claimed to have discovered the crystal skull, a London art dealer named Sidney Burney owned it. Further research showed that Burney sold his crystal skull to Frederick Mitchell Hedges in an auction at Sotheby's. With no record of the skull found before 1934, it appears the supposed discovery at Lubantun was a fraud. Then in April of 2008, a year after Anna Mitchell Hughes died at the age of 100, the same scientific tests verified that the Mitchell Hedges skull was also of modern construction. Walsh also added that the most famous of crystal skulls had almost identical dimensions the British Museum Skull and may in fact be a copy of the British Museum Skull. That same year, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull hit, hit theaters and features the title Adventurer searching for an ancient artifact in Peru. The film naturally sparked further interest in the mythos of the Crystal Skull. However, many still refuse to acknowledge that the skulls are without ancient origins. According to books written by alternative theorists Shana Ra and Max the Crystal Skull were both tested at the British Museum as well, is alleged that Walsh was asked for the results of the scientific tests on Shanara and Max, and responded with no comments. Which is absolutely um, not surprising at all. This is a cash cow for a lot of these people. Um, They don't want people to know that it's a bunch of bullshit and there's no such thing as a crystal skull. These crystal skulls, all of them, whether it's Max, or Sha or the Mitchell Hedges skull, they're every bit as legitimate at, at artifacts as the crystal skulls that Dan Aykroyd uses to put his overpriced vodka in. So, um, yeah, that, that's my thoughts on the crystal skulls. Since I'm only 20 minutes in, uh I really do need to give you a little bit more than just 20 minutes worth of a podcast. So I'm going to do a little bit of research right now on some other sort of unexplained uh statues or uh things like that. And I think I'm going to uh talk a little bit about those infamous Easter Island statues. Uh, something that is another element of uh unexplained mysteries that is usually uh, discussed quite frequently. So I'm going to actually read from a couple uh, different uh, sources. So this is uh, from Forbes. It uh, talks about how the famous Easter Island heads have hidden bodies. This is from a couple years ago. Uh, this is by Trevor Nace. Thank you, Trevor. Practically everyone has seen the iconic images of Easter Island heads. What you may not have known is that those Easter Island heads actually have hidden buried bodies. And I did not know that until I looked up this article, so uh, that's actually pretty interesting. Archaeologists have uncovered the bodies associated with the heads and found interesting discoveries that further our knowledge of the Easter Island civilization and how they created the monoliths. The Easter Island heads are known as the Moai by the Rapa Nui people who carved the figures in the tropical South Pacific directly west of Chile. The Moai monoliths, carved from stone found on the island, are between 1100 and 1500 CE. A bit of an aside, but CE refers to the common era and sometimes replaces the use of AD in historical and archaeological communities. As with many things on Earth, Time took its toll on the statues and buried them in sediment and rocks, hiding and preserving the torsos of the Easter Island heads. However, a team of archaeologists at UCLA developed the Easter Island Statue Project to better study and preserve the artifacts. Through this work, the team excavated several of the heads to reveal the underlying torso and body. So one of the biggest mysteries that has been discussed in a lot of these books and stuff like that in the past about these Easter Island statues, like, how do they do this? How do they, how do they have these giant heads? And then uh, the fact is they weren't, there were torsos. So there was always an explanation. It was not something that was unknown or unexplained. But at the same time, it still is really impressive how this ancient civilization even built something so massive in the first place. So, in total, the team documented and studied almost 1,000 statues on the small Pacific island. The project spanned nine years, whereby the team determined, to the best of their ability, the meaning, function, and history of each individual statue. After approvals, the archaeologists excavated two of the Easter Island heads, to reveal their torso and truncated waist, the heads have been covered by successive mass transport deposits on the island that bur- that buried the statues' lower half. These events enveloped the statues and gradually buried them from their heads, buried them to their heads as the islands naturally weathered and eroded through the centuries. Easter Island is situated within the Nazca Plate and is a volcanic hotspot similar to the Hawaiian island chain. This hotspot produced the Sala-y-Gomez Ridge, which spans the east of Easter Island as the Pacific Ocean opened through the East Pacific Rise. Easter Island was formed by successive Pylocene and Holocene volcanic flows consisting of basalt and andesite. In addition, volcanic tufts were deposited in the volcanic crater, which is the primary stone used for carving the monolithic Moai statues. Most of the statues are located along the Rano Raku, uh, Raraku... sorry, I, I'm, I'm butchering this, this language to pieces here. the Rano Raraku volcanic cone, which acted as the quarry that supplied the Rapa Nui the monolithic stones which were used for carving. While excavating the statues, the team found etched petroglyphs on the backs of the figures, commonly crescent shaped to represent Polynesian canoes. The canoe motif is likely the symbol of the carver's family, providing clues as to different familial or group structures on the island. In order to carve and place the statues upright, the Rapa Nui used large tree trunks that were placed into deep holes adjacent to the statues. They then used rope and the large tree trunk to lift the statue upright in place. The Rapa Nui carved the heads and front side of the statues while they were lying on the ground, and then completed the backs after uprighting the stone statues. The tallest of three statues uh, comes in at 33 feet high and is known as Paro. Abundant red pigment was found at the human burial sites of several individuals, suggesting that the statues were painted red, likely during ceremonies. These burials often surround the statues, suggesting that the Rapa Nui buried their dead with the family's statue. That's some pretty interesting uh, stuff, if you ask me. I never knew that these statue, these Easter Island statues, uh, actually had torsos. Uh, for the most part, they've been described as just being heads throughout most of pop culture and and history. Um, so, trying to find another thing. Another article that would be... Okay, here, here's something uh, by CNN. So, when it comes to Easter Island's towering stone heads, there's now one fewer mystery to solve. This is by Emily Dixon from CNN. This was actually updated in January of 2019. Researchers have long puzzled over why the huge statues were placed where they are. However, a new study says the people of the Rapa Nui... Uh, as the island is called in the local language, positioned them near sources of humanity's most vital resource, fresh water. Archaeologists studied the location of the statues and Maruai and the platforms on which many of them stand, known as Ahu. Uh, Polynesian seafarers first arrived on Rapa Nui in uh, 2,300 miles off the coast of Chile, approximately 900 years ago. They then went on to construct more than 300 Ahu and almost 1,000 Moai, which are believed to represent significant ancestors. The authors of a new study, uh, published in the journal PLOS1, sought to understand the distribution of the Ahu in order to further understand their creators. Study co-author Carl Lipo, professor of anthropology at Binghamton University in New York, told CNN that knowledge would tell us something about how the early people of Rapa Nui used the landscape and what they found important. Researchers from six U.S. institutions isolated an eastern area of Rapa Nui containing 93 Ahu. They analyzed the natural resources near the Ahu, focusing on rock mulch gardens in which crops like sweet potatoes were grown, marine resources including sites for fishing, and sources of fresh water. There proved to be no significant correlation between the location of the Ahu and the presence of nearby gardens, suggesting that the Ahu were not situa- situated in order to monitor or signal control over these resources. While both marine resources and freshwater sources were found near the Ahu, the researchers concluded that only the latter was significant. After all, both typically occur in the same locations and fresh water was much less widely available. The research team then mapped the island, which has no stream, streams or springs, for sources of fresh water. They discovered that it emerged from underground and areas along the coast through a process called groundwater discharge. Fresh water would literally come out right between the coast and the ocean in a stream. We'd see horses drinking out of the ocean, and it turned out that they knew exactly where the fresh water was coming out, said Lipo. That explained the high concentration of Moai and Ahu along the coast, the researchers inferred. Inland statues, too, could be connected to fresh water. They were found to be situated near caves or other fresh water sources. The findings also suggest that the Rapa Nui's Mowai and Ahu were valuable beyond their ancestral significance to the island's early people, the study offers concluded. Building the statues wasn't inexplicable behavior, but something that was not only culturally significant, but central to their survival, Lipo said. Next, the researchers hoped to further understand why such vast, elaborate statues were constructed. If their primary function was to indicate or claim ownership of freshwater, of a freshwater source, Lipo said a simpler construction would surely suffice. It's incredible how much energy went into them. These statues and the Ahu themselves weren't just a single event. They made the statues and these platforms to put them on, and then remade the platforms and the additional statues to put on them. And it is, it is one of the most amazing natural, uh, it's not, it's not a natural thing, actually. It's not man, it's man-made. It's one of the most amazing man-made structures out there, uh, considering the time that they were constructed, continue, considering the, uh, tools and, and the resources that were available to these people who built these massive, uh, statues, and there's a reason why the Easter Island statues is still something that fascinates and interests and captivates people to this day, because it, it really is such a marvelous uh, example of human ingenuity. Now, speaking of human ingenuity, uh, I kind of want to just kind of do a little uh, search here on... Some of the uh, greatest hoaxes in uh, in history. Let's see if there's like a top ten list or something. Uh, apparently there's a Netflix show called History's Greatest Hoaxes. Um, I'll, I'll go with uh, mental, flas- mental Floss's list of the fourteen greatest hoaxes of all time. Um, so... I'm, bre- I'm, I'm going to end this podcast talking about this top 10 list of hoaxes because I feel that it ties directly into the Crystal Skull discussion. Uh, that's one of the biggest hoaxes out there that I can think of. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about some more. These aren't necessarily unexplained uh, or unknown, but I've always found hoaxes interesting, and I hope you find it entertaining or uh, intriguing to, uh, hear about them. If you, uh, enjoy hearing about these hoaxes, I uh, highly recommend picking up a book called The Museum of Hoaxes. It's a great read, it's really entertaining, and it's really well written. So, um, the first, uh, thing that's mentioned here, uh, by, uh, Adam K. Raymond, who put this list together in 2014 for Mental Floss, is about how April Fool's Day didn't get its name. As Joseph Boskin would tell you, the origins of April Fool's are murky. In fact, the Boston University professor and pop culture historian was trying to say just that in a 1983 interview with reporter Fred Bales. But each time Boskin told Bales that no one is quite sure how the holiday started, the interviewer pushed for him for a more concrete answer. Eventually, the academic got fed up with the aggressive questioning and decided to concoct a story worth printing. Off the top of his head... Boskin began regaling Bales with a tale from the days when Constantine ruled Rome. Jesters, he said, petitioned the emperor to allow one of their own the chance to rule for just one day. On April 1st, Constantine relented. A jester, King Kugel, Boskin named him for the Jewish pudding dish, took over and proclaimed that April 1st would always serve as 24 hours of silliness. Boskin later said he made the story so absurd that Bales would have to catch on, no dice. The AP ran Bale's story about King Kugel and soon Boskin was fielding calls from news outlets across the country. He initially kept up the ruse, but a few weeks later the truth slipped out during one of his lectures about the media's unwilling media's willingness to believe rumors, which is still true. I mean, look at how much publicity the crystal skulls got for so many years. The editor of the school paper was in the class, and the campus Daily Free Press ran a headline declaring Professor Fool's AP. Once the truth was out, the AP was predictably embarrassed, but the story has a happy ending. Bales, is no longer an eager reporter, is now a professor of journalism at BU, where he can speak from personal experience about the media's gullibility. The Birth of the Bathtub December 20th gets no respect. On the calendar, it's just another winter day, best known for not being Christmas. But in 1917, writer H.L. Mencken set out to change that. When readers of the New York Evening Mail opened the paper in late December, they found Mencken's 1,800-word essay, A Neglected Anniversary, detailing the arrival of the bathtub in the United States. Mencken meticulously catalogued the tub's rocky debut in 1842, explaining how the bathroom fad had caught on only after Millard Fillmore installed one in the White House. By the 20th century, Mencken explained the momentous anniversary had fallen into obscurity. Not a plumber fired a salute, he lamented. Not a governor proclaimed a prayer. But there's a good reason why. Mencken had made the whole thing up. The humorist figured everyone would see through the ruse, and he later wrote that the article was harmless fun, meant to distract readers from World War I. It never occurred to me that it would be taken seriously, he wrote. But printing the piece in the evening mail gave Mencken's little joke extra credibility, and he was stunned by how the story snowballed. Within a few years, it had been referenced in learned journals and cited on the floor of Congress. The tale became so pervasive that the Boston Herald ran an article in 1926 debunking it under the headline, The American Public Will Swallow Anything. Three weeks later, the same paper cited Mencken's bathtub origin tale as fact. Mencken tried to set the st- record straight, but his efforts were futile. People were more interested in hearing about President Fillmore's tub than hearing the truth. Even today, the nugget resurfaces from time to time. In 2008, the story was featured in a Kia ad, which hailed Fillmore as best remembered as the first president to have running a, a running water bathtub. Poor guy can't even be remembered for something that he actually did. Here's the third one. Sherlock Holmes finds the missing link. Ever since Darwin published on The Origin of Species, scientists have been looking for the missing link, a transitional fossil that would seal the argument for human evolution. In 1912, an amateur geologist and archaeologist named Charles Dawson found it. The skull he pulled from a gravel pit in Piltdown, England, seemed to conclusively fit the part. And the discovery rocked the scientific community. Skeptics claimed the fossil was exactly what it looked like a human skull cobbled together with an ape jaw to fool gullible scientists. In the ensuing excitement, believers shouted down deniers, and in December 1912, the Geological Society of London hosted a ceremony where Dawson presented his fossil, the Piltdown Man. The doubters continued doubting until 1917, when researchers discovered a similar fossil nearby. The Piltdown faithful were thrilled. The new find, Piltdown 2, seemingly legitimized the old one. But the Piltdown man's scientific legitimacy gradually eroded over the next few decades. Other early human skulls began popping up in China and Africa, and each had an ape-like skull with a human jaw, the opposite of the Piltdown combo. The jig was finally up in 1953. After conducting tests on the skull, anthropologist Joseph Weiner and geologist uh, Kenneth Oakley determined the Piltdown man was no man at all. Rather, he was a combination of man, the skull, orangutan, the jaw, and chimp, the teeth. What's more, fluorine dating showed that the bones were no more than 100,000 years old, certainly not new, but not missing link ancient. The head looked uh, older only because the hoax perpetrator had stained it with iron and chromic acid. While the hoax was eventually exposed, the prankster behind the caper is still at large. Dawson is most likely the culprit but literary sleuths have turned their suspicions to another man, Sherlock Holmes's creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Not only was Conan Doyle a member of Dawson's archaeological society and a frequent visitor to the Piltdown site, he hinted in his novel The Lost World that faking bones is no tougher than forging a photograph, the ultimate smoking gun. If only Holmes were on the case. The next hoax is the uh, Italy's secret pasta gardens. This is a fun one. Where does spaghetti come from? Well, on April 1st, 1957, the BBC news program Panorama tackled the question with a segment about a Swiss town's robust spaghetti crop brought on by a warm spring and the disappearance of the spaghetti weevil. For those who love this dish, there's nothing like real homegrown spaghetti, anchor Richard Dimble Dimble B. said. And uh, viewers ate it up. On April 2nd, the BBC was flooded with hundreds of phone calls from people eager to grow their own noodles and then a rare treat for British diners. Keeping the whimsy going, the BBC instructed anyone interested in a a pasta-bearing tree to place a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. I mean, it really is quite baffling that people would buy that. Yeah, it was on TV but still like why why are you buying into that why are you see why do you see something like that and think i got to give me a spaghetti tree I, you know why can't we grow some spaghetti i like spaghetti like come on some people really are gullible and the state of how gullible some people are is genuinely mysterious Everyone knows you can't judge a book by its cover, but the aphorism got an extra dose of validity in 1969 when Penelope Ash, a bored Long Island housewife, wrote the trashy sensation Naked Came the Stranger. As part of her book tour, Ash appeared on talk shows and made the bookstore rounds, but Ash wasn't what her book jacket claimed. The author was as fictional as the novel she supposedly wrote, and both were the work of Mike McGrady, a Newsday columnist disgusted with the lurid state of the modern bestseller. Instead of complaining, he decided to expose the problem by writing a book of zero redeeming social value and even less literary merit. He enlisted the help of 24 Newsday colleagues, tasking each with a chapter and instructed them that there should be an unremitting emphasis on sex. He also warned that true excellence in writing will be quickly blue penciled into oblivion. Once, McGrady had the smutty chapters in hand, which included acrobatic trysts and toll booths, encounters with progressive rabbis, and cameos by Shetland ponies, he painstakingly edited the prose to make it worse. In 1969, an independent publisher released the first edition of Naked Came the Stranger, with the part of Penelope Ash, played by McGrady's sister-in-law. To the journalist's dismay, the cynical ploy worked. The media was all too fascinated with the salacious daydreams of a demure housewife author and though the New York Times wrote, In the category of erotic fantasy, this one rates about a C, the public didn't mind. By the time McGrady revealed his hoax a few months later, the novel had already moved 20,000 copies. Far from sinking the book's prospects, the press pushed sales even higher. By the end of the year, there were more than 100,000 copies in print, and the novel had spent 13 weeks on the Times bestseller list. As of 2012, the tome had sold nearly 400,000 copies, mostly to readers who were in on the joke. But in 1990, McGrady told Newsday he couldn't stop thinking about those first sales. What has always worried me are the 20,000 people who bought it before the hoax was exposed. Exactly. Um. I'd actually not heard of that one before. This is a literal, real-life book version of the producers. If you're familiar with the producers, the film, or the play, they... The individuals, the people in, the, in in the story, they decided to deliberately make the worst play ever. Because they were they were doing it in a way. I, I think it was their plan, so they could. I think it was so they could make it a tax write off. So they decided to make the worst play ever, and it's springtime for Hitler. It's a musical romp through Nazi Germany. And it ends up backfiring horribly on them and is a massive hit. And that's exactly what happened here. This guy goes out of his way to create what he feels is like the worst book ever and to prove a point, And it sells like gangbusters. So the next uh, hoax is uh, bip- bipedal beavers, unicorns, and other moon monsters. Much like submarines, submarine sandwiches, and the U.S. Constitution, the ethics of journalism were still evolving in the early 19th century. One rule that hadn't totally sunk in yet, don't ply your readers with outright fabrications. The newspapers of the day routinely manufactured stories to generate sales, but none was as outrageous as the New York City rag The Sun's The Great Moon Hoax, a series of six articles published in 1835 about the discovery of civilization on the moon. The articles claimed that a British astronomer named John Herschel had used a powerful new telescope to spot plants, unicorns, bipedal beavers, and winged humans there. The articles even went a step further, claiming that our angelic moon brethren collected fruit, built temples from sapphire, and lived in total harmony. The hoax was debunked immediately. Soon after the first installment ran in the sun, it was uptown competition. The New York Herald slammed the story under the headline, The Astronomical Hoax Explained but the American public preferred a universe dotted with angels, unicorns, and bedazzled architecture. The story created such a buzz that papers around the world rushed to reprint it, and while a theater company in New York worked out a dramatic staging. Before long, the Sun was making extra coins, selling pamphlets as a whole series, and lithographic prints that depicted life on the moon. It took five years for the story's writer, Richard Adams Locke, to finally confess to making it all up. As he wrote in The New World, His intention was to satirize theological and devotional encroachments upon legitimate province of science. But in all of this, the thing we can't believe is that no New York team has embraced the moon beaver as its mascot. Number seven, a math whiz horse. Is a hoax still a hoax that the perpetrator doesn't know it? Willem von Austin would likely say no. At the turn of the 20th century, the German math teacher was determined to prove the intelligence of animals. After trying and failing to teach a cat and bear how to add, he finally found a sufficiently studious beast. With years of training, a horse named Hans could add, subtract, and multiply, and read German. Von Osten held regular displays of his star's pupils' intelligence. Hans would calculate sums and convert fractions by tapping a hoof to indicate numbers. He became a national sensation, made headlines in the United States, and earned the nickname Clever Hans. To prove that the horse's skills were real, Ben Austin allowed a group of experts to examine his equine genius. They found nothing fishy, and and Germany embraced Hans as a marvel until psychology student Oscar Fungst came along and decided to throw a wrench in everything and be a massive buzzkill and blew the skeptic whistle. So unsatisfied with the work of the experts, Fungst claimed that Hans uh, had... uh, I guess, ex- exa- he actually, he examined Hans and figured out how the horse was doing its calculator act. Von Osten was sending him subconscious signals. Each time Hans was presented with a math question, he tapped tap away until a subtle cue on his owner's face told him to stop. The cues were so subtle that Von Osten didn't even know he was giving them. Indeed, the horse got the problems right, only when they were simple enough for Von Osten to solve, and his percentages plummeted when he wasn't allowed to face his master. When... Funkst exposed the truth, Von Austin d- denied it, insisting that Hans really was clever, and he continued to parade his horse before happy crowds. Today, animal psychologists know to write off these cues as the clever Hans effect. So, here we have another hoax, uh, the supergroup that never got to rock. Music fans got exciting news news in 1969 when Rolling Stone reviewed the first album by the Mass Marauders, a supergroup featuring Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, John Lennon, and Paul McCartney. That is quite the supergroup. Due to their legal issues with their respective labels, the stars' names wouldn't appear on the album cover, but the review extolled the virtues of Dylan's new deep bass voice, and the record's 18-minute cover songs, and one of the album's highlights was an extended jam between bass guitar and piano, with Paul McCartney playing both parts. The The writer earnestly concluded, it can truly be said that this album is more than a way of life. It is life. For anyone paying attention, the absurd details added up to a clever and clear hoax. The man behind the gag editor grail marcus was fed up with the supergroup trend and figured that if he peppered his piece with enough fabrication readers would pick up on the joke but they didn't after reading the review fans were desperate to get their hands on the mass marauders album rather than fess up marcus dug in his heels and took his prank to the next level he recruited an obscure san francisco band to record a spoof album then scored a distribution deal with warner brothers and after a little radio promotion, the Masked Marauders' self-titled debut album sold 100,000 copies. For its part, Warner Brothers decided to let fans in on the joke after they bought the album. Each sleeve included the Rolling Stone review with liner notes that read, In a world of sham, the Mass Marauders, bless their hearts, are the genuine article. So, now we have the next hoax. Is called Virginia Woolf Ships Out. Before Virginia Woolf and E.M. Forster were literary titans, and before John Maynard Keynes was the father of modern economics, they were p- both part of a crowd of friends that informally called themselves the Bloomsbury Group. Compromising of writers, artists, and thinkers, the group basically fun- functioned as a fraternity for geniuses. So it's fitting that the group's lasting legacy is a piece of tomfoolery. In 1910, the HMS Dreadnought was the fiercest, strongest ship in the Royal Navy. To the poet William Horace de Cole, it seemed like the perfect place for the Bloomsbury group to stage a high-concept prank. Cole, Wolf, her brother Adrian Stephen, and three pals decided to sneak aboard the Dreadnought, disguised as the Emperor of Abyssinia, and his entourage. Why risk the wrath of the Royal Navy? Because it was funny! The group sent a phony telegram to the ship's commander, letting him know that a delegation was en route, and they simply showed up at the ship. Amazingly, it worked. Dressed in caftans, turbans, and gold chains, and with their faces painted black, the Abyssinians were welcomed aboard the dreadnought with an honor guard, a red carpet, and a naval band. Despite the intentionally amateurish costumes, including at least one mustache, that began falling off in the rain, the Abyssinians stayed in character for the entire tour. When they spoke, it was either to exclaim Bunga Bunga in excitement or ramble in an invented language of Latin, Sahili," and Gobbledygook. At one point, they were forced to decline a meal, relaying through Stephen, who was acting as a translator, that the food had not been prepared for their spec- to their spe- specifications. In reality, they didn't eat because they were afraid their makeup would come off. The tour ended without the crew suspecting a thing, but then someone called reporters. British papers had a field day with the story, sailors were heckled with cries of bunga bunga in the streets, and King Edward himself made his displeasure with the incident known. In the face of such humiliation, the Navy was forced to take action. According to contemporary accounts, the Navy got its revenge by caning two of the male hoaxers. Wolf was spared in a lash because she was a woman, even though a lady's mere presence on the ship was one of the greatest sources of the Navy's embarrassment. Eventually, though, the Royal Navy developed a sense of humor about the incident. When the Dreadnought rammed and sank a German submarine during World War I, its crew received a congratulatory telegram from superiors. The text? Bunga Bunga. Number 10, A Bordello of Barks. Joey Skaggs is a professional prankster who plays the media like his instrument. He's made waves posing as an outraged gypsy hellbent on renaming the Gypsy Moth. He launched Walk Right, a fictional group dedicated to enforcing proper walking etiquette through militant tactics. But perhaps the best illustration of his life's work is the brothel for dogs that he opened in 1976. The prank started when Skaggs ran an ad in the Village Voice offering dog owners a chance to buy their pets a night with alluring companions, including Fifi the French Poodle. To Skaggs' surprise, he began getting calls from people wanting to drop $50 for his service. I mean, I get it. I get people who like dogs, who love dogs, but a dog brothel? Like, that's taking your love of dogs, like, way too far like even if it's supposed to be just for your dog to have a good time, like just just the thought of a dog brothel is really unsettling to me. And I mean, what what I mean, what goes on there? I, I, I guess really you know what goes on there is that, you know dogs are you know fucking probably uh doing some doggy style, um, but. I, I mean, why would anyone buy into that? That's such a clear hoax and such clear bullshit. But really, there are people out there are gonna fork over fifty dollars so they can have their dogs spend a night at a dog brothel. Like some people, man. Seriously, Jesus fucking Christ. So it didn't take much for the media to bite. And when reporters showed up with questions, Skaggs reeled them in by staging a night at his cat house for dogs. The stunt worked. TV stations issued breathless reports of the wanton acts of canine carnality. The ASPCA launched an investigation. A veterinarian publicly condemned the brothel. And the New York Health Department raised concerns about Skaggs' licensing. Skaggs eventually admitted the whole thing was a goof, but not everyone believed him. To this day, a television producer for WABC New York argues that the brothel was real and that Skaggs's hoax claims are just a clumsy attempt to cover his trail. Of course, WABC has a good reason to insist that Skaggs was running a genuine poodle prostitution ring. The station won an Emmy for its coverage of the story. Number 11. MIT Blows Up Harvard MIT students derive a great pleasure from tormenting their rivals at Harvard. Our favorite prank of theirs occurred during the 1982 Harvard-Yale football game when a weather balloon emblazoned with the letters MIT began emerging from the ground near the 50-yard line. In the preceding days, a group group of MIT students had snuck into Harvard Stadium and wired a vacuum motor to blow air into the balloon until it exploded, once again proving why you don't mess with engineers. Number 12, greasing the wheels. Back in the late 19th century, college teams took trains to get to road games, and Auburn took full advantage of the situation. For a few seasons, students ran grease along the train tracks before Georgia Tech games, making it impossible for the train to stop anywhere near the station. Year after year, the poor football team ended up lugging its gear a number of miles back to the station, giving the players more of a warm-up than they bargained for, and tilting the games in Auburn's favor. Card Talk trick tricking opposing fans into holding up placards to spell out a hidden message is a prank older than time it was perfected with a great rose bowl hoax of 1961 during which students altered the placards given to the university of washington fans so that the giant banner of the read cal tech on live television the math and science school which sits just a few miles from the rose bowl wasn't even involved in the game number 14 the elusive northwest tree dwelling octopus. According to the species official website, the Pacific Northwest tree octopus is native to the rainforest of Washington State's Olympic Peninsula. It spends most of its time frolicking on treetops and snacking on frogs and rodents. But today, the arboreal uh, cephalopod, cephalopod, uh, I can't fucking say that word, faces extinction thanks to rampant predation by the Sasquatch. That last detail gives away the joke to most people, but not everyone is so discerning. The octopus's meticulous creator, known online as Lyle Zapato doesn't just throw hoaxes onto the web. He brilliantly links back to dozens of external sites listing everything from short stories about tree octopuses to videos of baby tree octopus hatching to recipes for cooking them. And he throws in just enough legitimate links to throw readers off his scent. In fact, every statement is laboriously cross-referenced. Most Wikipedia pages would be lucky to even have this many sources. Taken together, Zapato's labyrinth of sites can trick even a savvy and even savvy web surfers into thinking this tree-dwelling octopus exists. A 2006 study by the University of Connecticut showed that about 25 out of 25 web, web-proficient middle schoolers fell for the hoax. Even when researchers told them that tree octopuses don't exist, the students couldn't identify the clues on the site to prove that it wasn't factual. The plight of the Pacific Northwest tree octopus is just one of Zapato's many causes. He maintains an elaborate site dedicated to promoting the Bureau of Sasquatch Affairs and one that alleges that the nation of Belgium doesn't exist. The deceptive branding of Belgian waffles fits into his conspiracy theory. And of course, whether you look at it as art or entertainment, Zapato's handiwork is a reminder not to believe everything that you read on the internet. So, that, my folks, is uh, my solo podcast. My voice is uh, about close to being shot, so um, I'm going to go... Give it a rest, and I am going to get something to drink. And, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I hope it wasn't too boring. I hope it was interesting or, or somewhat entertaining. And things should be back to the normal setup and the normal uh, podcast arrangement uh, with me and Josh together again fairly soon but until that time uh i will see you later and uh thank you for listening and you all have a great rest of your week see ya Wish that we could stay in